Sentinel Studios presents The Blood Shed by Richard C. Mills. The cold morning air slithered its way across my skin as I trudged numbly beside the seemingly endless east pasture. Why do they have to put the feeding trough so far away? I took a few more steps trying to manage the two food buckets and still maintain a timely pace. My arms ached from the weight, but I wasn't about to make two trips, not in this cold. I gripped the handles tighter, trying to squeeze a little more warmth into my gloved hands, but was rewarded with nothing. I hated mornings. It felt like some horrible crime against nature to be up before the sun was, and the not-so-subtle autumn chill didn't help to dispel my convictions. It would be another long day, just like the rest. A slow routine I was fighting to resist. Normally, a few cows grazed close to the fence line. They would see me coming and follow along, mooing excitedly to encourage me onward. Soon other cows would fall in line, and eventually I would have my own little herd, eager for the tasteless mixture of oats and barley. But this morning, however, something was different. The cows seemed to linger as I passed by, huddling together and hesitant to follow like they usually did. I shook the food buckets in an attempt to provoke them to move, but didn't stop to see if it had worked. I didn't honestly care. I was going to dump the food, same as always, and if they didn't want any, that was their problem. I finally reached the feeding station and emptied the two buckets into the large trough. Then I turned around to look. The cows had slowly followed, but were still visibly nervous about something, and still kept their distance. Mildly annoyed, I wrapped my arms around myself for warmth, scanning the field for anything that could be causing their anxiety. Nothing, nothing, and... What was that? About twenty paces on the opposite side of the food trough, a small black mound rose out of the grass. It was barely visible in the dim, pre-dawn light, and had the cow's behavior not put me on alert, I might have missed it altogether. I set the empty buckets down and quickly hopped the nearby gate, wanting to confirm my suspicion before going back with the news. I was right. It was a dead cow. I slowly circled around the body to get a better look. The corpse seemed untouched definitely not the prey of wolves or any other predator. Maybe sickness? I came to the face and my heart stopped cold. I'd only been here for about a week and a half, but that was long enough to know that this wasn't an everyday hardship of farm life. This... this was something else. The cow's face had been mutilated, completely torn up. Its eyes and ears were gone leaving nothing but tattered flesh and empty black sockets. It was a gruesome sight, and I wanted to look away, to close my eyes and forget what I'd seen. But those haunting, eyeless voids held my gaze, unwilling to let me go. In spite of the disfigurements, not a drop of blood stained the animal or the disturbed ground nearby. In some ways, that was helpful, but in others even more unnerving. 
A gust of cold wind blew across the pasture, snapping me out of my horrified stupor and adding to the chill that was growing deep inside me. I turned around and began walking quickly back toward the farmhouse, forgetting the empty buckets, but unable to blink away the disturbing image that burned my mind. I had to tell Uncle Dave. your typical small cattle ranch, or at least that's what my father had said. It looked enormous to me. Fields and pastures stretched as far as you could see in all directions, and the livestock and the chores that went with them seemed numberless. Built by my great-grandparents in the early 1900s, it had remained in our family ever since. My dad's older brother, David, had inherited the farm after my grandparents passed away. I wasn't sure if he'd actually wanted it, or had just gotten stuck with it. Either way, he'd faithfully followed in his father's footsteps of repairing, expanding, and modernizing the increasingly outdated farm as best he could. Most of those changes had been successful, but the actual farmhouse was a bit of a different story. Several various additions and major renovations had been made to the house over time, and now it looked odd, and in places almost bloated, like it was carrying the weight of extra rooms and features that its original frame was never meant to have. I thought it looked atrocious, and I would be forever grateful that it was my uncle that ended up with the farm, and not my dad. Still, I was here now, and that was a problem. My parents had decided that their marriage had reached a new milestone and deserved a celebration, so they'd plotted a trip across country to Las Vegas, or somewhere like that, for a second honeymoon. I'd been happy for them, as things had been a little rocky lately. Until I discovered that they had also made plans to drop me and my younger sister Jenny off in the calloused but apparently capable hands of my uncle and his family. Life experience, my mom had called it when I protested being shipped out as free labor for the end of our summer vacation. Suck it up, Jamie, was all my dad said the one time I'd complained to him. Jenny went along with the idea, and didn't seem to mind losing three weeks of her life, which for some reason made me even more upset. So here we were, slaving away in the cold pre-dawn hours for family members we hardly knew. What was I supposed to even do with this life experience anyway? The sun slowly crept up the flat and far-reaching horizon behind me, patronizing me with its lazy demeanor. It promised its warmth was on the way, but until then, my fingers and toes would remain half-frozen and numb. I finally spotted the giant green tractor bustling about in one of the fields to my left making large, slow passes from one side to the other. I was immediately jealous of the fully enclosed, heated interior, but I guess mild comfort was one of the perks of being stuck in this awful place full-time. I reached the field just as the tractor turned around, and I had to wait for him to make another whole pass before I could get his attention. At last, he saw my flailing arms, and the heavy diesel engine slowed and then rattled to a halt. 
Uncle Dave's face grew dark when I explained the news, and his words even darker when I led him back and showed him the corpse. He quickly flipped out his cell phone and began punching in digits, cursing quietly under his breath as he put the phone up to his ear. My uncle was a big guy, chiseled and weathered from many years of this life, but I could tell that even he was unnerved by the sight. It was partially relieving to know I wasn't the only one, and that something this gruesome wasn't an everyday occurrence. But that also made it slightly more terrifying. I found myself drawn back to those empty sockets, and somehow doubted that this was the experience my parents had in mind. What had done this? Hey Doc, it's Dave Randall. My uncle barked into the phone. I got a cow down here that you really need to take a look at. Call me back as soon as you can. He ended the call without a goodbye, and then just stared at the corpse. After a minute of silence, he realized I was still standing beside him and ordered me off to continue with my chores. I obeyed, trudging off once again down the seemingly endless path beside the pastures, but not before looking back over my shoulder to see him stoop down and run his hand across the dirt beside the body. When I finally made it back to the farmhouse, the sun had fully awoken and was getting to work warming up the morning air. I ran into Jenny returning with a basket full of eggs. She smiled and waved before disappearing into the house where she would assist Dave's wife Chelsea with lunch. I proceeded to the barn where my cousin Joel was busy unloading hay from the back of a large trailer. Joel was three and a half years older than me, and probably the one person who hated farm life more than I did. I felt bad for him, but worse for myself when I was with him. When he saw me enter, he paused and reached for a nearby bottle of water. What took you so long? He asked between sips, eyeing me with a dark suspicion. He didn't seem phased when I told him the news. Either that, or he just didn't care. When I finished explaining what had happened, he set his water down and climbed the hay on the trailer till he reached the top. So how long did it take you to make that up? He asked, picking up a bale and tossing it in my direction. It hit the floor, and I grabbed it and hauled it over to the giant stacks of hay that already filled the barn. I didn't make it up! I protested, heaving it up over my head to complete the top square. And your dad looked scared. I walked back to the truck as another bale hit the ground. So you're expecting me to believe that something killed a cow and only made off with its eyes? Joel was staring at me, challenging me. I didn't have an answer, so I said nothing, and we both worked in silence for several moments. So? He asked finally. What do you think did it? I don't know, I said. But you've been here a lot longer than I have, so I was hoping you might. He snorted a sarcastic laugh. No, I have no idea. We finished up the hay in relative silence, and then moved our separate ways as other miscellaneous chores called our names. Pulling weeds, hauling manure, renailing loose fence boards, and replacing rotten ones. So many chores, and all of them monotonous. I had hoped when I first arrived that at least the diversity of monotony would stave off the boredom, but that was not the case. At last, the lunch bell rang, and everyone headed to the house to wash up and eat. 
As the warm water ran over my stiff and dirt-encrusted hands, I heard the front door open, and a moment later saw Uncle Dave walk past. He stopped to place his heavy brown coat on the rack by the door, depositing the long, unneeded relic until the next morning, and then proceeded on to the dining room. I dried my hands and followed. My aunt and Jenny had already set the table and were now bringing out some of the food. David took his place at the head of the table and started flipping through a magazine while he waited. I sat down as well, to the right of my uncle, leaving the chair between him and I for Joel. When they finished bringing in the food, my aunt Chelsea sat down beside my uncle and Jenny beside her across from me. We were only missing one. How are you? My sister asked, smiling pleasantly. I shrugged, not knowing what I could say in front of everyone that would be both honest and polite. I didn't get the chance. My uncle set the magazine down and surveyed the room. Where's Joel? Nobody answered, and my uncle looked annoyed. I swear that boy's thick as a log. He picked up a serving bowl and began transferring whatever was in it to his plate. Then he passed it to Chelsea, who did the same. Soon we were all passing plates, bowls, and condiments back and forth across the table. At last, we heard the door open, the bathroom faucet turn on, and then a few moments later, Joel emerged into the dining room. Where have you been? My uncle asked. Joel maneuvered around the table to the empty chair. Jamie said there was a dead cow with a torn up face in the field today. I wanted to make sure he wasn't fibbing as an excuse to show up late. That's not your... My uncle began. Aunt Chelsea interrupted him, clearly concerned. Oh no, Dave. Another one? My ears perked up immediately. So it had happened before. But just once or multiple times? Yes. Uncle Dave said dismissively. Something got one last night. Tore it up pretty bad. Did you call the vet? Chelsea asked. Yes. Dave was getting agitated now. She's on her way, but until she gets here, I don't want to talk about it. He picked up a fork full of potatoes and shoved them into his mouth. We followed suit and began eating. Everyone except for Jenny, who was still sitting looking at her food. What's wrong, Jenny? My aunt asked. We didn't say grace. She replied quietly. I felt myself sink down in my chair a little bit. We were no strangers to religion, but were by no means fanatics either. A few years back, however, my sister had attended a summer camp, and she had come back a little too close to that border for me. I saw Dave shoot an annoyed glance at my aunt, but she nodded and shot a reproving look back. After a brief second, he gave in. Of course. He set his fork down and clapped his hands together. Dear Lord, thank you for this food that has been prepared for us. May it strengthen us for the rest of the day. Amen. 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 Came several half-hearted echoes from around the table. And then all of us, including my sister this time, began to eat. With lunch concluded... We all headed back out to our respective tasks and jobs. It was slow, hard, and oppressively boring. But I slogged through it, and finally reached the end of the day. Another awkward meal passed, and another waste of a day began to draw to a close. 
I couldn't wait to go back home. As my sister and aunt were collecting up the last of the dishes from the table, Joel quickly excused himself and disappeared. My uncle remained, his attention split between the newspaper in front of him and the big dining room window to the left. At last, he saw what he was apparently looking for. In the distance, a small white object was navigating its way down the farm's long, winding driveway. David got up from the table and headed to the door, calling out to his wife that the vet was here and that he'd be back soon. Still morbidly curious about what had happened to that cow, and with nothing better to do, I followed him. And we both stepped outside just as the big white truck reached the house. The door opened, and a tall woman, looking roughly in her mid-forties, got out. She wore a white shirt and blue jeans, with her black hair tied back in a working woman's ponytail. She and my uncle exchanged a few cordial words and a joke or two. Then she asked about the cow. David gestured in the direction, and then, ignoring me completely, they both got into her truck and slowly pulled away. I swallowed my dismay at having been left behind, and determined that, despite the distance, I would follow them on foot. I was really curious, and wanted to see what the doctor would say about the situation. Uncle Dave had always played things close to the vest, so I knew I would never get an answer from him after the fact. And this was my only chance. Without having to carry buckets of food, the walk wasn't that bad. But it still took a while, and by the time I got there, the examination was already well underway. The doctor was kneeling by the dead cow, armed with a pair of gloves and a clipboard resting nearby, and my uncle stood slightly behind her. A dark green tarp lay nearby the body, rolled back from where David had most likely covered it earlier to keep away the buzzards. As I drew closer, I remembered the sight of Uncle Dave running his hand through the dirt, but could see nothing out of the ordinary. What had he done? I looked up to see my uncle glaring at me, his face the epitome of annoyance. He was just opening his mouth to speak when the vet finished her prognosis. Well, oh, the injuries match up pretty consistently with the other five you've had, and the blood's been drained completely on this one, too. She rose slowly from where she'd knelt and began working off the fingers of her latex gloves. My uncle quickly shifted his attention from me to the woman. You still think it was lightning? I'm not sure what to think, she replied. Then she gestured to the mutilated and half-missing face. I've never seen lightning do this to a cow anywhere else. And you'd also expect there to be some marks or burns on the body. So what are you saying? I'm saying I don't have any explanations for this. She stopped and looked him square in the eye. So come clean with me. What's going on here? I... My uncle stammered, clearly incensed by her implication. You think I did this? Either that, or you've got some really bad luck going on around here. Look, I don't know what your business or finances look like, 
But I've had people try and off their cattle for insurance money before. It's not a new idea. That's not what this is. Dave almost snarled. He was angrier than I'd ever seen him. I don't know what's going on, but I swear it isn't that. Several glances passed between them in a wordless conversation I wasn't privy to. Then she spoke again. Fine. I'm going to let this go again, but only because I know you. That'll take care of insurance. Now do me a favor and find out what's doing this. I will. Good. Call me if there's anything else I can do. With that, she wished us a good evening, got back in her truck, started the engine, and with a final wave, drove away. My uncle began walking back to the farmhouse. I followed timidly, and we were both silent, deep in thought. David's reaction seemed authentic, and killing off his livelihood just to claim the insurance didn't make sense to me. However, I was quickly coming to realize that things didn't always happen as they should. And if that wasn't what was happening, then what was? We returned to the house just in time to get ready for bed. I wanted to talk with Jenny, but she was already asleep. So I cleaned up for one final time and crept into the bedroom I shared with Joel. I laid down on the spare cot and tried to forget about everything except for marking one more waste of a day off my mental calendar. Then I closed my eyes, tried to tune out the low rumble of Joel's snoring, and dreamt fitfully of home. The next morning as we gathered for breakfast, Uncle David was nowhere to be seen. Nothing else seemed out of place, though, and everything went on normally. Aunt Chelsea entered the dining room with a large plate of scrambled eggs. I hope these will still be all right. I couldn't find my good pan. I swear, things are just getting up and walking off when I'm not watching. She set the plate on the table and sighed. (sighs) Of all the things I lost... Where's Dad? Joel asked. He went hunting last night. Without me? Joel seemed a little incensed. Don't worry. She turned and headed back into the kitchen. Then she said something else, but it was muffled and I was too tired to care about deciphering the meaning. I was still half asleep, just awake enough to start dreading another abysmal day of farm work. I felt a scratchy sort of tightness resting deep in my throat. As if being here wasn't bad enough, now I was getting sick, too. I grabbed a large spoon and mechanically lifted some of the eggs out of the large dish and onto my plate, then set to work, eating joylessly. A small wireless radio played softly in the background as a news forecaster gave the weekly weather snapshot. A few sunny days followed by some thunderstorms and possible severe weather late in the week. The temperatures were supposed to warm slightly, but even that was little consolation in my irritated mood. Why did I have to be here? Couldn't I have just stayed with one of my friends back home? I heard the screen porch door open, and a moment later the actual house door. Heavy, thumping footfalls bounced off the wooden floor. 
coming closer, and finally my uncle appeared, fully dressed with a large camouflage jacket and jeans. He had a rifle slung over his shoulder, which he promptly removed and placed in the corner before sitting down heavily at the table. My aunt was there in an instant with a steaming cup of coffee that she placed in front of him, stealing a quick kiss as compensation. How did it go? Dave grunted. Nothing. Why didn't you tell me you were going? Joel piped in. Because I want you and Jamie to go tonight. I want to find out what's doing this and to stop it. That answer seemed to placate Joel. So we're going hunting tonight? David nodded and took a sip of his coffee. Normal chores today, but you can both take tomorrow off to rest. I couldn't believe my ears. A day off? Was I dreaming? I'd been out hunting twice with my dad back home, and while I didn't particularly enjoy it, right now anything that served as a respite from farm labor was something to look forward to. The only problem with a glimmer of hope in the distance, however, is that you still have to get there. Tomorrow wasn't today, and I still had a full day of misery and monotony to slog through. I made endless pilgrimages here and there, filling feed troughs. Then I moved to the barn, where I had to muck the stall of Princess, the family's ancient, crotchety witch of a horse. It wasn't really hard work, but it was complicated by the fact that, no matter what I did, the stupid animal would try and bite me every time I turned my back on her. Other chores followed, and through all of them the still rising sun seemed to mock me. It crawled up the cloudless sky, taking what seemed like an eternity before finally reaching its full ascent. We broke for a quick lunch and then went right back to it. More chores, more monotony, and more wishing that tomorrow would hurry up and get here. I hated this. I couldn't stand the feeling of living just to get through another day. At last, Uncle Dave released us to organize and prepare for the night ahead. Joel took the lead from here, and we spent the rest of the day scurrying around the house and barns, each gathering various items from Joel's master list. Flashlights, rifles and ammo, water bottles, and backpacks to hold it all. Dave stopped by on his way into the house and offered to help, and the three of us loaded everything. Then, as Joel and I hoisted the backpacks, David issued some last-minute instructions. Don't try and go into the woods. Just stay in the field within sight of the corpse, and remember that coyotes circle, so try and stay crosswind if you can. If you don't catch anything tonight, then we'll poison the carcass, haul it to the woods, and let whatever is doing this come back and realize he doesn't enjoy the taste. We nodded in unison. It seemed like a pretty desperate backup plan, but I guess most backup plans are. Why not go into the woods? Joel asked. Because you don't need to, and because I said so. All right, all right. Joel put his hands up in surrender, obviously not expecting that response from his father. Then he looked at me. You ready? Yep, I'm ready, I said. And we turned and headed out. Dusk was finally beginning to settle by the time we reached our appointed hunting ground, and the heat of the day was quickly dissipating. The carcass was still mostly there, although the buzzards had clearly been at work. 
The last of the stragglers flew away as we approached, but the stench of rotting flesh remained. Okay, I said, looking around the empty field. So where are we setting up? Joel gestured further eastward. There's a really good spot just inside the forest that I like to set up at. Inside the forest? I echoed, questioningly. You mean the same forest your dad explicitly said not to go into? No. I mean the other forest that's right here. Came Joel's retort, the bite of his sarcasm nearly drawing blood. Of course that one. But your dad said... Joel cut me off. My dad spent all last night sitting here and didn't see anything. I don't know how he or you expect us to do the same thing and have a different result. He took a breath and then started again. (sighs) Look, I love my dad, but he's never been a very good hunter. He's too reactive. If I've learned anything at all, it's that if you want to solve a problem, you've got to be a little more proactive. In this case, you can't just wait and hope for some chance encounter. You've got to make a little effort and find it yourself. Then he smiled. And I don't know what he has against us going into the forest. But I say we at least try it. I still didn't like it and tried to protest, but Joel was insistent. And when push came to shove, I found myself entering the forbidden forest closely behind him. A backpack and one of Dave's hunting rifles slung over my shoulders. An unwilling rebel. The fast-growing night was much darker under the thick canopy of leaves and branches, but Joel didn't stop. Just clicked on his flashlight and continued on. He led me past a number of makeshift landmarks. A small bubbling creek, two large rocks with a fallen tree lodged between them, and an old, partially collapsed shed. From there, we took a sharp right through a tiny clearing filled with overgrown blackberry bushes and then back into the forest on the other side. Stands just a little farther this way, he said, gesturing with his light. Finally, we stopped, and Joel shone his light up one of the trees. There it is, he announced, almost proudly. It's pretty old, but it's still sturdy. I clicked on my own flashlight and looked around. Joel set his light down, threw his pack to the ground, and then began unzipping pouches. A cool breeze blew through the trees, playing with the brittle leaves above and around us. It was turning into a nice night. Joel withdrew a covered object from one of the pockets of his backpack and began unwrapping it. I turned my light towards him, giving him light to work in and also to get a better look myself. It was a dead rabbit. I watched as he placed it on the ground and then pulled another one out of his pack and placed that one as well. After producing and placing two more, he stood up, walked a little ways away, and set his flashlight down again, with the edge of the low beam just illuminating the bait. He then pulled out a transparent red filter and clicked it in place over the light. There. He said, apparently satisfied with his work. Then he turned and gestured to the hunter's stand. Ladies first. I ignored him and climbed up the old ladder to the camouflage perch. Joel popped up seconds later, and then we both settled down into comfortable positions with good vision of the bait below us. So... what now? I asked after a few seconds of silence. What do you mean? Joel asked, confused. I mean... we just wait? Joel looked at me, almost disbelieving. Have you never been hunting before? 
No, I have. But it was with my dad. And it's what you'd call reactive hunting? With all your talk about being proactive, I thought we'd be going and scouring the forest bush by bush. For a minute, I could tell he thought I was serious. But then he picked up on my slightly more subtle brand of sarcasm, and I saw a faint smile cross his lips. No. Regardless of what approach you take, at some point, you still have to wait. And wait we did, in the dark, silent loft of the hunting stand, making no sound or movements. Don't people usually use a call or a howl imitation? I asked quietly, trying to keep my voice low. Normally, yeah. Joel responded in like manner. If you know you're trying to hunt. I looked at him, confused. Don't we? Joel's voice grew more intense and conspiratorial as he spoke. Jamie, you saw that cow. You tell me that's the work of a normal coyote. He paused, allowing time for me to shake my head. Then he continued. Have you ever heard of a chupacabra? I shook my head again, unsure of where this was going. It's an unconfirmed creature that reportedly hunts livestock. Mostly sheep and goats, but sometimes cattle too. And get this. People say that after they kill something, they suck out all the blood. He let that sink in. Now, I'm not saying that's for sure what did this. Maybe it was just a coyote. But my point is, what if it happens to be something else? A coyote call is going to do nothing. Or scare it away. I don't want to take that chance. I couldn't disagree with his logic, even though I thought the premise was a stretch. Still, I didn't dismiss the idea. Could a mythical blood-sucking monster actually be to blame for the death of Uncle Dave's cattle? I couldn't disprove it, and if such an animal existed, there were certainly pieces that fit. It also helped explain why Joel had been so insistent that we hunt inside the forest, instead of where David had told us. Perhaps he was hoping to be the one who finally proved the existence of some elusive creature. The talking subsided, and Joel silently reached in his backpack and pulled out a canteen. He took a quick swig and then held it out to me. I thanked him and took a sip myself. It was not water. I coughed, surprised, nearly choking, but managing to swallow it, sending a rush of painful warmth down my throat. Joel just shook his head and rolled his eyes, but also smiled a little. The waiting continued. I don't know how long we sat there in silence, nesting in that little perch, but at some point my eyelids began to droop. That peaceful semi-sleep state welcomed me, and without the thought of endless chores looming overhead, I found myself happily succumbing to it. The next thing I heard was a small rustling sound in the undergrowth a little ways away. I was alert immediately, and Joel and I locked eyes and then both looked to the illuminated patch of forest nearby. A large silhouette came into view. It sniffed the air, looking around. Then it took a step closer. Joel slowly lifted a finger towards me, telling me to keep still. He wanted this. Another few steps, another few sniffs, and Joel's rifle inched closer to the target. The animal was at the bait now. It sniffed the air one more time, 
and then it looked straight at us and snarled. A gunshot rang through the air, betraying the silence that had kept it hidden and filling the whole forest with its echo. The creature's body flinched, and the impact and shock sent it to the ground. It was up again in an instant, however, trying to flee. Joel chambered another round faster than a flash of lightning and fired again at the beast. Another deafening blast. It hit again, this time directly, and the animal toppled over, and this time didn't get up. Joel whooped with delight, and abandoning all stealth, got up and quickly climbed down the ladder. I followed him, and soon we were both standing in front of the fallen animal. That's the biggest coyote I've ever seen! Did you see that shot? I nodded, drawing in a breath as I looked down at the kill. A large, lanky canine. Most of its hair was gone, but in a few places small pockets of brownish-gray fur still clung to the mange-ridden animal, looking like tiny islands amid an infected ocean of scabs and raw skin. Its jaw seemed abnormally long as well, locked in a permanent, lifeless snarl. Even lying dead in front of us, it was a menacing creature. Joel whooped once more, and then reached again for his canteen, taking a very long, celebratory swallow. Then he turned to me, an expression of wild victory on his face. I think we may have just found our culprit. With one abnormally large coyote eliminated, our cover blown, most of the night gone, and no other real reason to stay, we declared the hunt a success and started heading back to the house. Neither one of us wanted or could think of why we need to bring the coyote with us, so we took a picture and then just left the body there, retracing our steps back past Joel's various landmarks. The forest was quiet. No birds sang yet, and the wind was still. It seemed as if all of nature was giving a moment of silence for its recently deceased member, mourning their loss and looking upon us with silent condemnation. Every noisy footstep we took only compounded matters, making me feel even more like a ruthless perpetrator in this grieving place. Maybe this was why David had said not to go into the woods. Or maybe it was just me. Joel didn't seem to be bothered. He was still beaming with excitement and continued to swig away at his flask. The old shed came into view, Joel's next landmark. We were getting close to the edge of the forest. I always wonder who built that, or why they put it way out here. Joel mused aloud gesturing towards the shed. Then he stopped and gazed quizzically. Hold on. Do you see that? I followed his outstretched hand in the direction of the crumbling shed. The sun still hadn't yet begun to rise behind us, and the dark of night was still slowly morphing into the dull gray of early morning. It was enough, though and we could both tell that it wasn't a lack of light that made the wood around the collapsing doorway slightly darker. It was something else. I'm not an expert on wood types or construction techniques, and probably wouldn't have even noticed had it not been pointed out. Even so, there were still lots of rational explanations for the discoloration. 
Maybe the lumber used for the trim had just been naturally darker. Maybe it was rotting. Maybe it was some sort of staining fungus. Maybe it was any number of things other than what my mind first jumped to. But combined with the now seemingly hostile forest, the whole look of the half-demolished structure gave me the creeps. Joel, however, was intrigued and walked over to investigate. I followed, slowly, second-guessing each step. An odd, musty, slightly metallic smell greeted us as we got closer. I don't know that I think this is a good idea. Joel looked back at me with a crooked grin on his face. Why not? You're not scared, are you? Then he nodded to the rifle that I had forgotten was slung over my shoulder and smirked. Fine. You stay out here. He fiddled with the latch a minute, and then the rusted hinges complained even louder than I had as he pulled the door open. Utter blackness greeted us from the inside, but Joel was not deterred. He unclipped his flashlight from his belt, clicked it on, and then ducked through the lopsided doorway. I remained planted outside, my feet as unmoving as the trees around me, while my mind swayed back and forth in a battle between curiosity and fear. I watched the erratic beam of Joel's flashlight cut through the slumbering darkness as he explored the place. What do you see in there? Not a lot, came his reply. Some empty shelves, a lot of really rusted tools, just a bunch of old junk, mostly. Fantastic, I said, not trying to hide the sarcasm that itself was masking my fear. Can we leave now? Yeah, just give me a... He stopped. Hold on. What's that? What? I was really getting uncomfortable. The sound of our voices splintered the otherwise silent forest, making me feel even more isolated. I really wanted to leave. There's... there's another door in here. Joel's voice was getting more distant. Really? My brain's pendulum swung again from fear back to curiosity. A door to where? I looked down the length of the shed. It didn't seem big enough for multiple rooms on the outside, but maybe it's dilapidated condition made it look smaller than it really was, or maybe the door was simply to a closet or a cabinet or something. I heard more squealing hinges from inside the shed, and my eyes returned to the dark entrance in front of me. And this time something caught my eye. There, etched into the discolored wood above the collapsing doorway, was a carving. It was rough, and the letters were sharp and rigid, but the word it spelled was clear enough. A tone. I waited another tense second, and then asked, Well, what was it? Silence. Joel? I called out, raising my voice in case he hadn't heard me. There was no reply. I slowly lowered my head to look further into the shed, searching for the sweep of his flashlight. But all was darkness. Reluctantly, I unclipped my own small flashlight and turned it on. Then I took an unsure step into the shed. I felt the rise in temperature almost immediately as the warm, stale air surrounded me. 
I couldn't tell if it was actually hotter in here or just my blood starting to pump faster. Hopefully the heat was the only thing this place was hiding. I took another step inside, and the flashlight flickered and then went out, abandoning me to the darkness altogether. I shook it fiercely, desperately hoping the batteries would start up again, but was rewarded with nothing. Figures. The left side of the shed ended abruptly, so I took a few cautious steps to the right, squinting to try and make out the vague details. Joel's description had been accurate. Rusted iron shelves lined the walls and formed a few small aisles in the middle, with piles of indiscernible junk littering the rest of the floor. A handful of decrepit tools and farming implements also hung from long, rusted nails along the sides of the shed. The twisted decorations of a dark abode. I heard a soft whisper behind me. I jerked around to once again look at the empty back wall. Nothing. The sound continued, though, and I wasted no time in scampering back to the light of the doorway. It was only then that I identified the noise. It was the wind. Apparently, the silent tribute of the forest was over, and now a small breeze was passing along the outside of the shed and entering through the cracks in the wood. It had only sounded like a whisper. I took a deep breath and another nervous step back into the eerie shack, quietly calling out for Joel. No one answered. I ran my arm across my forehead, wiping the forming beads of sweat from my brow. The heat was growing, and I didn't know why. Then I saw something. There, in the back left corner of the right side, a low red light emanated from a small doorway. It was faint, barely detectable even in the darkness. I kept gazing at it, trying not to even blink for fear I'd lose it in the shadows. It looked almost like it was pulsing, slowly growing slightly in power before again receding back to a dim glow. Almost like beating. Almost like a beating heart. My mental pendulum stopped altogether. Crushing pressure from both sides forced it into a withering standstill. What was this? And where was Joel? Something pushed me from behind, and I careened forward into the shed wall, knocking my head against the wooden planks. I saw stars, and for a flash, everything was illuminated in the light of shock and sudden pain. I toppled to the floor, the breath knocked out of me and still stunned from the fall. A large body covered me quickly, grabbing my wrists with invisible hands. I screamed breathlessly and lashed out with my feet, but my assailant was just out of reach. One of the hands loosened its grip momentarily, and I saw my only chance. I bit down on one of the hands, so hard I tasted blood. Both hands released, and an agonizing scream filled the inside of the shed. I quickly scrambled up, looking for the light of the doorway, but the movement was too much and I collapsed again to the ground. 
wave of dizziness washed over me, but I gritted my teeth and tried to crawl towards the door. I was in full survival mode now, my reeling mind rerouting power only to essential functions. I couldn't taste the dirt that I knew filled my mouth, and the curses from behind me were only a blur of distant noise. All I knew was that I had to make it to the light. After an eternity of crawling forward without the light getting any closer, I was again covered by the weight of another. Again, hands grabbed my wrists. But this time, lying on my stomach, there was no fighting back. Jamie, it's me, Joel. Stop struggling. I heard the words from a distant tunnel, an echo bouncing off the corners of my mind. Joel! I struggled to cry out, knowing that I would never see my cousin again. Knowing that the monster in the shed had consumed him and that I would be next. No, Jamie, listen to me! came the voice in the tunnel. I writhed on the ground, trying to break free, but the monster above was stronger. I'm not sure how long it held me there in the blackness, but only when I finally exhausted myself did it slowly turn me around and remove its hands. I saw Joel kneeling over me, holding his still-bleeding right hand, using the bottom of his shirt to absorb the blood. Joel? I whispered, staring dumbly at him. It was you? I'm sorry. I I meant it to be a joke. I didn't mean for it to go like that. Are, are you okay? I just sat there, my mind not comprehending. What? I didn't think you'd hit your head, and when you did, I was just trying to steady you and make sure you were alright. He cursed again, and readjusted his hand in his now-stained shirt. Ugh, you bite like a devil! My mind had completely overheated, and nothing made any sense. But as the adrenaline and survival instincts wore off, the realization of what had happened slowly became clear. Joel? I said again blinking back hot tears. The feelings of terror left me, only to be replaced by a slowly growing horror. It was all a sick prank? The look on Joel's face was answer enough. I was furious. All thoughts of hunting were gone, replaced only by a desire to get away from this horrible place and this horrible person. I didn't hold back the tears as I exited the shed, and ignoring the calls that still came from the dilapidated structure, I turned and began walking back to the ranch. It hadn't taken Joel long to catch up. And now he was walking alongside me, pleading for my forgiveness. I ignored him, intent on reaching the small white speck in the distance. He seemed insistent that I shouldn't tell his parents about the whole ordeal, which made me want to all the more. At last, he stepped in front of me to block my path and put his hands firmly on my shoulders. Jamie, come on. Don't be a baby. Look, I said I'm sorry. I looked at him, as another hot tear squeezed past my eyelid. Joel, you scared me. I thought... I thought something had happened to you. 
And then when you attacked me, I thought... I thought... I know, and I'm sorry. But what I'm saying is I can make it up to you. Let's just work it out between us. No, I said, shaking free of his hands and brushing past him. People have to be punished when they do something wrong. That's the way life works. Come on, don't be like that. He called after me and then jogged to catch back up. Fine. Here, here, how about this? What are your three least favorite chores? You keep quiet about this and I will do them for you the rest of this week. It was an obvious bribe, but my head and legs were aching and the piercing light from the rising sun behind us wasn't helping. I knew we'd been given today off, but right now, the mere thought of having to ever complete another day's work was despair-inducing. I had never been so homesick in my entire life. Well, what do you say? I was reluctant to agree at first, but then I remembered my daily ordeals with Princess. I stopped, and we shook hands to seal the deal. We finally reached the farmhouse. Breakfast had long since passed by the time we arrived, and everyone had already left to start their respective chores. Joel made a beeline for the bathroom to wash and care for his damaged hand. The swell of emotions had left me spent and exhausted, but the edges of my mind were still tattered with paranoia. Rest could mend it, I just had to get some. Joel and I had been sharing his room to this point, but there was no way I wanted to sleep in the same room as him. Not after this. I tried to run through my options. There was a couch in the family room, but for some reason it felt too open and exposed to comfortably rest. I quickly threw out the hayloft as an option, and reprimanded myself for even briefly entertaining the thought. Then my tired mind struck upon Jenny's room. It was right across from where Joel would be, but it did have a lock, and something about it just seemed safe. I heard the squeak of the shower water screaming through the old pipes. Joel was apparently washing more than his injured hand. I headed into the kitchen, wanting to at least wash my hands and find something to eat. I opened the refrigerator and found two nicely wrapped plates of breakfast leftovers, one with my name on it, the other with Joel's. I grabbed mine and headed upstairs, not wanting to be anywhere that felt open and unsecured, not even just to eat. I slowly climbed the staircase to the second story of the house. A large, decorative, floor-to-ceiling cabinet marked the abrupt end of the short upstairs hallway, with a bedroom door on either side of it. Taco, the black-and-brown calico cat, sat next to it, fully alert, his yellow eyes gazing fixedly at the tiny gap beneath the antique cabinet. He most likely cornered a mouse and was now just biding his time. Part of me identified with the terror the mouse must feel, but I didn't stop to help, 
the mouse had gotten to safety. But I felt like I was still out in the open, still fleeing from my own predators. I walked up next to the large piece of furniture and bent down to quickly inspect myself in the little mirror that hung from it. There was a visible lump on the left side of my forehead from when the shed had imprinted itself in my skull, both physically and mentally. It was an off shade of purple, with twinges of light brown around the edges. Hopefully it wasn't that noticeable and would heal quickly. Resigned to my bruised appearance, I straightened up. Normally I took the door on the right side of the hallway, but this time I entered the door on the left. I bolted the door behind me and propped the wooden sitting chair against the door, locking it in place under the doorknob. Then, finally feeling secured, I collapsed on the bed and didn't move. It'd be hard to describe the following hours as restful. Lying awake in the dark, unable to sleep, fraying minds still jumpy and on edge, ignoring my agitated wishes for it to calm. Reliving. The memory of the shed clung to me, refusing to dissipate. Something about it didn't feel right, and it wouldn't leave my mind alone. Eventually, I guess I must have fallen asleep, but I awoke feeling neither rested nor refreshed. Just groggy. After multiple failed attempts of turning over and trying to go back to sleep, I gave up and got out of bed. My first steps were shaky, as my head was still slow to adjust to my changing positions. But finally, I righted myself. Still, I grabbed the railing as I went down the stairs, just as a precaution. As I reached the bottom of the staircase, I heard familiar voices coming from... somewhere, and meandered through the obtusely designed house until I reached the family room. There they were. Dave sat in his big recliner chair, while Jenny and my aunt sat with their backs to the fireplace, where a small fire feasted happily on a stack of wooden logs. Taco lay curled up on Jenny's lap, his sleeping face betraying no secrets as to the fate of the cornered mouse from earlier. David looked like a man chained and awaiting torture. As soon as I entered the room, his eyes were on me. His look said that he was thankful for the brief distraction from what was taking place, but also dreading that my arrival would signal the start of his pain. How'd the trip go? Did you get anything? I opened my mouth to speak, and the true story almost came tumbling out. I almost told them how Joel had deliberately disobeyed Dave's instructions, and about his cruel prank turned assault in the shed. How afterwards he'd tried to buy my silence, and how I'd accepted... But I had accepted it. I'd given my word and shook on it. Joel will want to tell you. Then I said nothing else. I stood there silently for an awkward moment before Aunt Chelsea chimed in. Well, now that you two are finally up and around, we can start. At that moment, Joel entered the room and stood beside me. Through the corner of my eye, I could see he was wearing a new white t-shirt 
and I looked down to see that his finger was bandaged neatly in matching white gauze. He took in the scene before him dubiously. What? What's going on? While the two of you were out, Jenny and I did some cleaning in the attic, and she found this old Bible. She gestured to the big black book that rested precariously on Dave's lap. And we figured it had been too long since we spent some time as a family. Is... is this a joke? Joel asked, incredulous. Not at all! His mother smiled at him, her voice subconsciously bleeding innocent condescension in that way that only a mother's can. Have a seat. But Mom! Joel protested. I don't have time for this! It won't take long. Joel sulked into the room and sat down on the floor, completely disinterested from the get-go. Every now and again, I could see him holding back a grimace of pain. With everyone seated, Dave received the go-ahead from my aunt and sister. He opened the book, invisibly blanched at the first page, then gathered himself and flipped a couple more pages over. Maybe the realization of what he was actually doing had grabbed him, but it was an odd reaction. Then he started. Genesis 1, the creation story, the very beginning of the Bible. I had heard it many times before, and this retelling was one of the more uninspired ones. But Jenny and my aunt were seeming to enjoy themselves. My head was still cloudy and aching, and this wasn't helping it. I hoped that after a chapter, maybe two, whatever this was would stop. But it didn't, and the five of us sat trapped together as Dave slogged through chapter after chapter with plenty of faltering but no actual signs of stopping. From his body language and the genuine lack of excitement in his voice, I could tell my uncle was a very unwilling participant in this event. And while Aunt Chelsea seemed to enjoy it, knowing her, it was most likely out of some antiquated picture of quality family time. Jenny was the one pulling the strings here. I glanced at her and immediately confirmed that she was at fault for this. I loved my sister, but her overbearing enthusiasm for things like this never failed to make me feel worse about situations. We reached chapter four in the ongoing monotony, and Dave's voice was the epitome of uncertain as he tripped and stumbled over the old King James. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Cain and Abel, another story that I'd heard many, many times before. I let my eyes and mind wander around the room. For a farm passed down through the same family, it wasn't very homey. There were no family pictures, no meaningful mementos gracing the walls. The whole house was very practical, but here in the family room, even with the fire burning, I couldn't help but feel a little cold. And Cain was very wroth, and his 
his countenance fell, and the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Dave got through a couple more verses, then stopped briefly and began again a second later. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and, and slew him. My ears perked up. This time, even with Uncle Dave's faltering oration, something was resonating in the story. I tried not to look at Joel, but my mind replayed the events of the hunting trip. And sitting there listening, I felt like I understood the terror Abel must have felt. I had experienced it, and now I relived it all over again. But had it really been a prank? Or had Joel actually tried to kill me, but then changed his mind? Or maybe his joke had just gotten out of hand? Still, from my perspective, not knowing the truth or difference, the fear from that moment ran deep like a gash across my mind. Maybe it would scar, but I didn't know if it would ever heal. Uncle David was also getting fidgety. In truth, I don't know that I'd ever seen him sit still for this long except to eat. His voice was shaky, and his countenance strained as he tried his hardest to just get through it. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, He said, I know not. Am I my, my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground, and, and now... Then he closed the book with as finalizing a thud as he could manage. I think that's enough for tonight. But David, please... My aunt said... At least finish the rest of the chapter. No! Dave's voice was unexpectedly exasperated. That's enough. We got a big day tomorrow, and we should all get some sleep. No one else argued. But a second later, Jenny's voice broke the silence. Can I pray before we go? She asked. Of course you may, darling, Chelsea said, nodding her head to reinforce her approval as well as to dissuade any disagreement. Jenny bowed her head and closed her eyes, and half in the room followed suit. Then she began. Dear Lord, thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for bringing Jamie and Joel back from their hunting trip safely. I tensed. There's no way she could have known what had happened. And it was probably nothing more than just a thoughtful platitude. Nevertheless, it was startling. And this time I did shoot a quick glance at Joel. He was fully alert as well. And looking directly at me an angry question in his eyes. I met his gaze, shook my head at his implication, and then nodded towards his bandaged hand. The wordless discussion quickly diffused itself, as Jenny didn't linger, but continued on. Lord, 
Thank you for loving us enough that you would send your son Jesus to pay the price for our sins and provide a way for us to be forgiven no matter what. Help us all accept your mercy and love. Give us strength for the coming day, Lord, and help us better live to serve you every day. Amen. I knocked quietly on Jenny's door, hoping that she hadn't already gone to bed. I wasn't ready to sleep yet. The hunt and then the long nap afterwards had thrown my schedule off. I also just really wanted to talk to her. The door cracked open and Jenny's head poked out. She smiled her greeting and opened the door wider to let me in. She was wearing a white flowing nightgown, a terribly impractical thing she must have found stored in one of the closets or something. Sorry, were you trying to sleep? I asked. Nope. She replied. Just reading. I stepped inside, and she shut the door and then sat back down on her bed. There was a moment of silence, and again I had to battle back the fierce urge to tell her everything that had happened. I wanted to. I really did. It had felt wrong to exclude her, but I didn't want her to worry or be scared. At least not until I knew what exactly was going on. Still, at the rate I was going, that might never happen. But maybe she could help. She was a good listener. Way smarter than I would ever publicly admit. And most importantly, the only person here I knew that I could trust. But would telling her be abusing that trust? I wanted so desperately to get this off my chest, to not be the only one trying to figure it out, to know I wasn't alone. I knew Jenny would listen and want to help, but would telling her be for her benefit or just mine? It would be selfish to make her feel worse just so I could feel better. What were you reading? I finally asked, delaying my decision, stalling for mental time. She pointed to a small Bible that lay open on the nightstand. I was finishing the chapter that we started downstairs. Yeah, that was weird. There was the opportunity again, the chance to open up and tell her everything. And after what happened in the shed, a part of me couldn't escape the feeling of being in danger. I just didn't know if the feeling was real or if I was over-imagining things. If it was, though, and if there was a threat of some sort, to me or anyone, I wouldn't be protecting her by leaving her in the dark about it. What you don't know can indeed kill you. I took the opportunity. Did you think Uncle Dave was acting strange? Yeah. She replied. He seemed really nervous. I took a deep breath, confirmed my decision one last time, and then started. Jenny, there's something going on here. I don't know what or why or even how to explain it, but something doesn't seem right. I know. She replied, immediately looking concerned. That was not the response I was expecting. I... you do? Yeah, there are secrets here, painful ones. I've been wanting to talk to you about it, but 
With everything that's been happening, there hasn't been time. Plus... She grimaced slightly. Plus, I didn't want to scare you. Not until I at least had something. I know you already think I'm weird because of what I believe, but I didn't want to make you think I was completely losing it. What? She didn't want to scare me. <laughs> I would have laughed at the irony had the situation not been so serious. Jenny, I said, trying to make my voice as reassuring as possible. You're my sister. No matter what happens, I'm always going to think you're weird. Then I broke into a wide smile. She followed suit, and the room lightened as we both laughed quietly. All right, I said after a minute, bringing the conversation back to the mystery at hand. You go first. Okay. Well, do you know about the door? I shook my head. What door? There's a door behind the cabinet in the hall. I was putting my earrings in the other day and dropped one. It rolled under the cabinet, and when I went to look for it, I saw the bottom of a door behind it. Are you serious? She nodded, and then got off the bed and walked over to the door. Here, I'll show you. I followed her out of her room and into the hallway. The old oak cabinet stood proudly, haughtily revealing nothing about what may or may not sit behind it, as the little hanging mirror tried to inconspicuously direct all incoming attention back upon those passing by. It did look completely out of place, but like most antique pieces, it reveled in that fact, and thus seemed normal. It made the perfect distraction. I couldn't move it by myself. Jenny gestured towards the cabinet. But if you take a light and shine it under it, you can see the opening in the wall. I nodded, but I didn't look to where she was pointing. The door to Joel's room was open, but there was no snoring. I held up a cautionary hand towards Jenny, then slowly tiptoed over to Joel's room. It was empty. Joel wasn't there, which meant that he'd most likely be coming at some point. We had to either wait or do this now, and hope we had time. My mental pendulum was swinging again, moving back and forth between curiosity regarding what we'd find and fear that any minute Joel would find us. Hang on, I told Jenny. Then I walked downstairs. I went to the kitchen and got a glass of water, inconspicuously surveying the rooms as I went. My aunt and uncle had both already gone to bed, and the entirety of the house was dark. I didn't know where Joel had disappeared to, but he wasn't here. I went back upstairs and found Jenny still waiting. All right, I said, let's do this. Jenny took one side and I took the other, and together we tried to lift the large wooden dresser out of the way. It was heavy. It took us several tries, but we finally budged it. A couple more attempts, and we were able to turn it just enough that we could slip in behind it. I squeezed past and saw that Jenny had been right. A door filled the back wall. First dead and faceless cows, and now hidden doors and family secrets? What was going on here? 
I supposed this was possibly an opportunity to find out. So, with a slightly trembling hand, I reached out and gently clasped the knob, and then turned it. It didn't move. The door was locked. With an exasperated sigh, I released the handle. How secure did this room need to be? I figured finding the key would be a stretch, if it even still existed. So I'd have to get in another way. Do you know where Uncle Dave would keep a screwdriver? I asked. Jenny thought for a moment. Um, maybe his desk? Or there might be some in the kitchen or on the screen porch. I nodded and went back downstairs, this time to the living room. A large desk sat in the corner, covered in loose papers. I rifled through the drawers until I found a flathead screwdriver. Well, at least that was easy. I went upstairs again and went to work on the door, trying to pull or pry any way that I could. The lock was an old one, obviously being overlooked the last time new knobs were installed. Still, it held strong, and I ended up having to unscrew the entire handle. Thankfully, the screws were on the outside, and in minutes, the knob was off and the lock accessible. I pulled it out, and the secret door popped open, swinging back silently, leaving us face to face with a void of empty, gaping darkness. Not this again. I'll get a light. Jenny volunteered, and then quietly flew down the stairs. I remained staring at the hidden doorway, transfixed by the darkness that masked the interior. Old, stagnant air came slowly crawling out of the opened entrance, like half-dead prisoners finally released from quarantine. It smelled flat and heavy. Moments later, Jenny returned with an LED lantern in hand. It was the first thing I could find. She turned it on, and we were immediately surrounded by an aura of bright blue light. We both took a deep breath, and then we entered the room. Stepping through the doorway, it was almost like we'd stepped into a memory, a pocket of space unaffected by the constant flow of life an unmoving picture existing in reality. I found and flipped the light switch, but wasn't surprised when nothing happened. The lantern would have to be enough. I looked around, surveying this secret room, looking for anything super obvious. Sheets of dust covered the floor and furniture like a blanket, speaking to the vast number of years this room had gone untouched decay was evident as well. Large cobwebs filled the corners and dangled from the broken light and other pieces of furniture. And the drapes, bedspread, and small teddy bear were suffering too. It took me a minute, and then I looked back. Drapes? I walked over and pulled the hanging curtains back and found myself looking out a window straight at a brick wall. I checked the other set of drapes, and it was the same. 
This room had been intentionally built around, completely, purposefully enclosed. But why? Why go through this much trouble to hide a room? Who even knew about it? Had Uncle Dave done it? Or did this secret go even deeper? Jamie! Jenny whispered. Over here! I turned to see her standing over by the wall with the door, holding the lantern up to illuminate a large hanging picture. I understood why this had caught her attention, if for no other reason than that the rest of the house was so devoid of pictures that this one stuck out obtrusively. I also noticed how in her old flowing nightgown, she looked like a ghost. I tensed, trying to ignore the chill that touched my spine at how natural a thought that was. I walked over beside her and looked. It was an old framed photograph of a husband and wife and their two sons. My grandparents, uncle and father. I'd seen a couple pictures of my dad's childhood, but this was by far the oldest one. My grandparents looked much younger than I'd ever seen them. My uncle too. But my dad looked older somehow. Strange. I hadn't seen many of my dad's baby pictures, but I thought I remembered the rest of the family looking much older. Was this just a really deceiving picture? I slowly lifted the picture up off the wall and brought it down. Dust fell to the floor in heaps, and Jenny stifled a cough as she tried to angle the lantern so we could see as I slowly rotated it around. There, written on the back of the frame in a beautiful cursive hand, were the names and ages of all in the photo. Jeffrey Randall, age 33. Lydia Randall, age 29. David Randall, age 9. Daniel Randall, age six. Daniel? I asked quietly, then looked over to Jenny. Who's Daniel? She shook her head wordlessly, large eyes glowing blue from the lantern's light. She was already processing what this meant. Daniel Randall? Was he another uncle? She asked aloud, giving voice to both of our thoughts. I guess he would have to be, and Dad's not there, so he must have not been born yet. I nodded. I knew Dave was a lot older than my dad, and this fit together. There was another child between them. But why haven't we ever heard of him before? She shrugged. I don't know, but this must have been his room. She extended the lantern out to encompass as much of the room as she could in the harsh blue light. Hidden and locked away, just like his memory. I was struck by the tragic profoundness coming from my little sister, but it was true. It also now made more sense why there were no family pictures or mementos anywhere. Everything had been purged of all sentimental value because of Daniel. Someone was trying their hardest to hide him, or to forget. 
I flipped the picture back over and stared at the two boys. There was Uncle Dave, older, taller, and smirking, the same exact expression I'd seen Joel make. I didn't remember ever having seen him smile before. And then to his right, completely straight-faced, was Daniel. What had happened? And why was he trying to be forgotten? Was he dead? Or still alive somewhere? What would life have been like having another uncle? Do... do you think... Then she stopped and simply handed me the lantern. I'll be right back. I set the picture on the dusty floor, propping it against the wall, and took the light from her. Then she exited the room and disappeared from sight. I tried to organize all the puzzle pieces together in my head, fitting together what clues I had to see if they connected. A missing uncle, a hidden past, mutilated cows, David, Joel, and a creepy old shed. Well, I knew that I had a missing uncle and someone was quite obviously trying to erase all traces of his existence. The picture was proof that David knew about Daniel, which means that David was either complacent in the covering up of his brother's memory, or the one fully responsible for it. Those pieces snapped together and held, but there were still many other pieces floating around and I wasn't seeing any correlations. How did this fit with everything else that had happened? Maybe it didn't, and we had just found a dark but unrelated family secret. I heard footsteps coming up the stairs outside and almost jumped before realizing it was Jenny. She reemerged into the room carrying that old black Bible David read from earlier. She held it up for me to see, and then opened it to the first page, the page that had brought Uncle Dave such visible discomfort earlier. She briefly scanned the page, and then found what she was looking for. Presented to Danny Randall. May this book serve to guide you for the rest of your life. She drew a breath and flipped ahead a few pages in the Bible, and then reread the passage we had heard earlier, picking up where David had left off, and continuing further on past where he stopped. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Jenny looked up, her face as white as her nightgown from the sinking realization. I think Uncle David is afraid of something. I think he's afraid of what he's done. Another chill shot down my spine as two pieces snapped together. Was that why it had been so hard for David to read during the devotion? I'd been so preoccupied with what had happened in the shed with Joel that I hadn't thought about much else. But in light of what we'd found here, 
A solid lead was starting to take shape. Had David been the cause of Daniel's death? Is that why his memory was being buried? I swallowed at what that might mean. Was David a killer? All right, I said finally. I think we're done in here. We need to talk about what's going on. An endless line of black clouds filled the horizon, but the promises and threats of the coming storm were already riding the gusting wind around me. It was just a matter of time before it would hit. I tried to quicken my pace, walking faster while once again balancing the two metal food buckets against each other. The absolute last thing I wanted was to get stuck out here when the storm finally reached us especially one that looked this ferocious. Jenny and I had spent most of the rest of the night up, filling each other in on what had been happening and then trying to figure out what we could. We'd been mostly unsuccessful with that, and then were interrupted by footsteps coming up the stairs. Joel had finally come back. We waited silently for him to pass and then decided that we better try and at least get a little sleep. Jenny lent me a blanket and pillow and I slept on the floor, still not trusting Joel enough to sleep in the same room. I hadn't slept well. My developing cold had finally reached full strength and combined with the less than comfortable wooden floor, as well as our recent revelation, I found rest elusive. So instead, I fruitlessly cycled through the list of possibilities and clues, racking my sick and exhausted brain for answers. Again, I found none. As I approached the first few solitary cows, I could tell they were spooked. They were more clumped together than usual. I couldn't blame them. The storm was going to be a bad one. But as I continued on, hustling as fast as I could go while loaded down with feed, I got the feeling that their dread was not directed at the looming, menacing clouds. It seemed to be coming from something else. Oh no. The grass in the pasture was blowing wildly as the gusts of wind sent ripples and waves through the field. It was there, in the rippling grass, that I saw another large, dark mass. Not again. Please, not again. I set the food buckets on the ground and walked towards it, already knowing that I'd find exactly what I feared, but still strangely, morbidly compelled. It was exactly the same. The cow looked untouched, with no signs of what had caused its death, and not a drop of blood visible anywhere. Again, everything looked normal, until I reached the mutilated remains of its face. The eyes, ears, and this time the mouth as well, had all been removed, 
leaving only eerie, empty voids behind. I found myself staring again into those disturbing, eyeless sockets, and the cut and mangled face looked back at me in an unblinking, never-watching stare. It was as if they had a message for me, as if each partial face was but a portal that connected me to an evil mind. A distant boom broke me from my trance. Thunder. It was angry and vengeful, full of malice and ready to judge. But judge who? Had lightning done this like David advocated? Had my uncle done it like the vet had questioned? Had a coyote or a chupa... chupaca something actually been responsible for this? Was it all something else entirely? Something so dark and mysterious that it was completely unknowable. The thought of Uncle David reminded me of something. After I had shown him the body the first time, I had watched him bend down and wipe something away from the dirt. If this was exactly the same, maybe it would have it as well. I dropped to my hands and knees beside the carcass, working my way around it, orbiting the corpse and searching for anything aside from dirt, grass, and cow manure. There was nothing. I made another full circle, inching my way through the dirt, desperate for something, anything. Again, nothing. I stood up, slowly, still looking, and... And that's when I saw it. There, written in the dirt with thin lines of dried blood, was the word atone. The breath lodged itself in my throat and refused to budge. Atone. That was the piece. It connects the mutilated cows together with the old rotting shed. Atone. But atone for what? The pieces of the puzzle were within reach. They were fidgeting, anxious to jump into place and reveal everything. I just needed to help them. Uncle David had covered the word up, just like he tried to cover up the memory of our other uncle. He was hiding all of it, purposely destroying it, because he knew it was for him. Another piece clicked into place. The mutilated cows were a gruesome message to David. A message to atone. My mind stopped cold, and I had to will my heart to continue beating. A message to atone for his brother's death. A drop of rain splashed into the dirt beside me, followed by another one. The clouds were nearly overhead. I quickly found and dumped the food buckets into the feeder, and then ran as fast as I could back to the farmhouse. I needed to talk to Jenny. I managed to beat the rain back, but just barely. As I entered the farmhouse and let the door slam shut behind me, 
the torrent began in full. Aunt Chelsea must have heard the door slam, because she appeared from the dining room. Jamie, are you all right? She asked, her voice slightly alarmed. I think so, I replied, breathing heavily. Just trying to make it back before the storm. Do you know where Jenny is? I tried to mask the urgency in my voice behind my gasping for air. Aunt Chelsea nodded. After breakfast, she said she wasn't feeling well and asked if she could go back to bed. I was actually just about to go up and check on her. I'll do that, I replied. I had a question I wanted to ask her anyway. If you want, but if she's sleeping, don't wake her. Chelsea turned back towards the dining room. And let me know if she needs anything. Okay. I called back and then made my way up the stairs. The door to Jenny's room was open, and as I rounded the corner and peeked in, I saw that it was empty. She was gone. I felt a stab of dread. It wasn't like her to lie. But maybe she was in the bathroom or had moved downstairs to the couch. I turned to leave and felt a drop of liquid hit my shoulder and soak through my shirt. Was the roof leaking? I automatically went to brush the water off my shirt. But when I looked for it, I was faced with a red blotch. Pure terror gripped me, paralyzing my body and mind. I looked up from where the drop had fallen and saw that etched in the top of the doorframe, dripping with fresh blood, was the word atone. Thunder exploded throughout the sky as I tore like its fearsome counterpart across the open fields, running as fast as I could towards the small forest. I was going to the shed, and nothing, not fear, physical exhaustion, or the worsening weather, was going to stop me. Cold rain pummeled the earth, pelting my body through my already soaked clothing. I pushed on, splashing through puddles of both mud and water as I battled the fierce, gusting wind that sought to topple me over. I ignored all of it, anger alone propelling me forward. I was the real storm, and I was coming. It was all beginning to make sense now, and everything was pointing back to Joel. He'd been the one behind the mutilated cows, vanishing mysteriously the night before they were found. That connected him in the disappearance of my sister, as well as the old shed, where no doubt they both were now. He was responsible for all of it, and he was going to pay. I slipped in a patch of mud and went sprawling to the ground. My elbow hit the ground hard, and pain flashed up and down my arm. Seizing the brief moment of rest, my legs began screaming as my lungs gulped madly for air. I couldn't rest. There was no time. If I was too late, I couldn't even bring myself to think about it. I grimaced and pushed myself out of the mud, then started running again. The distant forest grew closer 
and then closer. And finally, the storm-battered trees enclosed around me. I darted past trunks and around bushes, frantically trying to follow Joel's landmarks. The creek was now bloated and raging, belching water so viciously that it cut multiple new trenches into the earth. Despite the cover overhead, the forest provided no relief from the fury of the storm. The trees no longer stood silently prejudicial, no longer looking down on me with just contempt. They now howled wind-induced obscenities, lashing this way and that as they did so, their leafy hands seeking to snare and entangle me. Thunder peered above once more, adding further to the cacophony of nature's hatred. I wasn't welcome here. This forest had seen too much evil perpetrated in its midst to forgive. My intrusion was an ugly reminder. I supposed I understood their animosity, but I also didn't stop. The tree lodged between the rocks came into view. I was almost there. A handful of other trees nearby had succumbed to the wind's relentless pressure and fallen forming a ring of destruction. Now the long and twisting tree roots stuck up wickedly, a testament and legacy to the storm. I took in the scene quickly as I passed, and the signs were clear. A small tornado had touched down. Hopefully there wouldn't be others. At last, I reached the old rotting structure. The shed. Why was it so important? What part in the story did it play? I steeled myself, knowing that I was about to find out. I had half expected to see it completely collapsed, but it remained as it had been, still partially standing. It had probably survived weather like this countless times before, but would it withstand my storm? I walked up and grabbed the handle, pulling it hard. It groaned, and then the rotting, splintered wood released its hold, and the handle came loose in my hand. Disgusted at its weakness, I threw aside the handle, and then clutched the door itself, trying to pry it open. Despite the wind and the rain, the metallic smell was strong in the air. I couldn't get a strong enough grip, however, and my cold and wet hands kept slipping off when I pulled at the door. Last resort, I took a step back and then sent a foot flying into the rotted door. Once, twice, three times. The wood collapsed and folded in with each kick until finally it broke open enough for me to squeeze through. Darkness surrounded me, and while it agreeably sheltered me from the weather, there were no feelings of safety here. This was not a refuge. Fear again clenched at my mind, undermining my resolve and replacing my anger with anxiety. Were storms ever afraid? I could still hear the rain on the roof and the wind was once again whispering its wild secrets through the small holes in the shed wall. But it seemed so distant, 
so far off. I stood there for a moment, letting the water drip from my clothes and skin and fall to the shed floor with little thuds. The broken door brought in a little light, providing a narrow cone of semi-clear vision in front of me, and I looked around. Blood. Blood was everywhere. Vials, pots, pans, jars, any container you could think of lined the shelves and dotted the floor throughout the interior of the shed, all filled to the brim with dark red liquid. Three large jars caught my attention. These had clear liquid, but that wasn't all. Dead, unseeing eyes stared out at me from the center one, and the others contained what looked like ears and lips that had gone missing from the cows. Each jar was completely full. It was too much. My stomach lurched and I almost gagged. How many cows had Joel slaughtered? What kind of sick, twisted soul was he? A flash of anger returned, accompanied by still more fear. He still had my sister. With a deep breath, I began moving through the shed, delicately avoiding the puddles of blood with care I hadn't shown with the water and mud outside. I made my way deeper into the shed, and the natural light slowly diminished, replaced by the ever-pervasive darkness. My foot struck a cooking pan, and warm liquid sloshed up my leg. I almost gagged again, but kept going. Then, amid the blackness, I was greeted by a faint red light emanating from the door further within the shed the one Joel had mentioned before attacking me. It was where he and Jenny were now. I knew it. I made my way towards it, heart racing. The small door opened up to reveal a hallway, and the red light grew a little brighter. I didn't want to do this. I wanted to go home. I wanted to go back home and never leave it ever again. But I had no choice. Jenny was here, probably more terrified than I was, and definitely in more danger. I ducked my head and entered the hallway. I looked around, but I couldn't see any source for the red light. There were no fixed lights or lanterns, it just kind of hung in the air like a glowing mist, an unmoving cloud of tainted space. I could tell now that it was indeed pulsing, although I could find nothing causing it. The light simply intensified, and then receded, and then intensified again. It was rhythmic, but it seemed faster than last time, more excited. The hallway angled down, descending slightly, but the wooden, rotting walls of the shed continued down with it. Writing and symbols filled the sides of the hall, painted in blood. I tried to read it in passing, but the writing was chaotic and disturbed, 
the scribbled outpourings of a frantic and confused mind. The, the eyes for the pain you saw that day, the ears for the screams you choked away, the lips for the words you did betray, and the blood for the debt you must repay. Finally, I understood. That's why this place was so important. It was here. Uncle David had killed Daniel here, in this shed. Joel had found out and was sending messages to his father to atone for it, leaving a trail of blood that led back to the scene of the crime. I reached the end of the hall and entered another room, a small chamber of sorts. No, this wasn't possible. The shed definitely wasn't this big. Something weird was happening. The red mist permeated the air, so thick I couldn't even see the ceiling above. It seemed almost alive somehow, pulsing so brightly in places that I had to squint. It gave the whole room an atmosphere of evil. Is this hell? On the far wall was a small raised platform made of pallets and wooden boxes. Joel stood there, holding something and looking up into the mist. Jenny was there too, tied to a large post in the corner, her head bowed limply in front of her. No. Joel looked down from the pulsing fog and locked eyes with me. What are you doing here, Jamie? Come to mess everything up? I saw Jenny's head shoot up when she heard Joel speak my name, and I breathed a heavy sigh of relief. She was still alive. I focused my attention back at my cousin, my voice quivering from rage and fear. You're the one that's messed up, Joel! Why are you doing this? I have to! You already know that, you both do! He gestured to Jenny with the object in his hand. The shed demands payment. This is the only way I can save my family. A realization hit me so hard I felt like Joel had stabbed me. He wasn't leaving messages for his father to atone. He was trying to atone for it himself. Joel, I said, taking a cautious, trembling step forward. Joel, hang on. Let's talk about this. We can figure something out, right? No! He screamed. This is the only way! I don't want to lose my dad! I'm sick of him having to fear this! It's time for it to end! It's time to pay the debt! He took a step closer to Jenny. At first, I thought the cows would be sufficient. I thought if I brought enough blood it would eventually add up, but it wasn't enough! The shed required more! I was taken aback by that. Joel thought the shed was talking to him? he gone completely insane? I looked up at the glowing red mist. Was it possible? Could it be that Daniel's death had awoken something within nature that was unable to forget the crime that happened here? Is that why the forest outside felt so hostile? How much more? I asked. 
already knowing what he would answer, but hoping I could stall for time until I could figure something out. A life for a life, came his chilling reply. I was struck with a thought. I could kill him. Right here, right now. If I could get to him and get the knife, I could end this forever. And if the shed wanted payment, then I could provide it. The red mist pulsed in unison with my thoughts, encouraging me. I took another step further. No. This was my cousin. Thoughts of murder shouldn't be so easy. But look what he was planning to do to my sister. Someone's already done that. Jenny said, softly. Someone's already given their life. We both turned and looked at her. I didn't know if she was following my lead and trying to draw his attention away from me, or if she actually believed it. Either way, Joel turned towards her. What are you talking about? Jenny spoke again, this time with more power in her voice. God knew that our sins against him would require a payment that we couldn't pay ourselves. So he became a man, so he could give himself up as a willing sacrifice for every sin that's ever been committed. He shed his blood so that we might not have to, so that we could be free from things like this. I... I don't believe that, Joel replied. If that's true, then why does the shed still demand blood? Because you haven't accepted that payment yet, she said. You have to choose to take it. This thing still has power because you give it power. And now it's lying to you. It doesn't want you to believe the price has already been paid. It doesn't want to lose its hold. I was transfixed by her story and the clarity and passion with which she told it. The room was silent and the glowing mist had darkened visibly, making everything harder to see. No, Joel said finally, shaking his head as if to dispel a mental fog. No, the Shed told me I had to help repay the debt. And if I don't do this, then we're all doomed forever. My mind latched onto something Jenny had said. A willing sacrifice. Now I felt I had a weapon I could fight with. But you think this will solve it? Yes, Joel said, exasperated. I do. It's the only way. Then why didn't you kill me when you had the chance? You were going to. Weren't you? But then you didn't. I... I don't know. He looked down. I think it was because some part of you realized that it would be murder. That you couldn't atone for something by doing it again. Don't you see? There's a difference between sacrifice and murder. You kill another person against their will, and whatever this is only gets worse. It doesn't matter if you kill her, or me, or- I stopped, realizing the trap I had almost fallen in. Or if I kill you, the Shed will keep demanding atonement, and the cycle will never stop. The red light diminished even more. Joel stopped and thought for a moment. Joel. I said, going for broke. The sacrifice has to be willing. Where do I find a willing sacrifice? He asked, his voice almost pleading. 
Then his eyes grew big, and he took a deep breath. There already was one! Jenny cried, but he didn't listen. Instead, he turned the knife slowly, and then plunged it into his chest. Jenny screamed. I stood, motionless, as Joel's eyes grew wide, pain washing across his face. He teetered for a moment, taking one off-balance step, then another, before finally falling off the wooden platform and into the dirt. The red light, by now nearly dissipated, flared back up brighter than it ever had before. The intensity blinding me, burning my eyes and skin, and then just like that, it was gone. All was silent, except for the sound of Jenny crying. When my vision returned, the room was pitch black. Using my memory, I stumbled up to the platform and started pulling at the ropes that bound her. Finally, I managed to remove them all, and she collapsed to the floor, weeping. I put my arms around her and embraced her tightly. He didn't believe. She choked out between sobs. He... He didn't believe. No. No, he didn't. I said. But I think I do. She hugged me back, and we wept together in the darkness. The large jet engines rumbled gently as the airplane sailed through the clouds, carrying us away from the farmhouse and back towards home. It was a comfortable sensation, and after the host of uncomfortable situations I had been in lately, this was a nice change of pace. Joel's death had completely shattered my aunt and uncle, and in the aftermath that followed the tragedy, Many old secrets slowly began coming to light. One revelation led to another, and soon the whole truth came bubbling out. It was obvious Dave and Chelsea would have a lot to work through, and the ranch was no place for us to be while they did. We didn't feel particularly welcome there anymore either, as everyone was stressed from the burdens of sudden grief and lifelong dishonesty. Thankfully, upon hearing the news of Joel's passing, our parents cut their vacation short and allowed us to do likewise. As we said our goodbyes, I realized that this was likely the last time we'd ever see them. Unless David changed rapidly, we would probably be just another memory that he'd want to bury if he could. It's not that it really saddened me, after all, I would have always hated visiting the farm, especially now, with the memories of this horrific trip. But still, something about saying goodbye and knowing you never see them again held a sort of solemn finality to it. Like they were passing away as well. Not through death, but the living decay of distance and indifference. And everyone seemed perfectly fine with that. I knew I was getting too introspective, 
but up here, soaring among the clouds, it was hard to keep your thoughts from floating as well. I yawned. No, I was just tired. And I wasn't the only one. Jenny had fallen asleep in the seat beside me, her head resting on my shoulder. If I moved or reclined, I would probably wake her, and she needed the rest more than I did. So, I stayed awake, rolling over the events again in my mind, and continuing my introspective musings. There were still many unanswered questions. What had really happened in the shed? What exactly was that glowing red mist? Was it a sentience of some kind? It had disappeared after Joel's death, but I wasn't so sure he had defeated it. What had really seemed to weaken it was Jenny, and the willing sacrifice that she'd mentioned. It was something that had stuck with me, and after everything that had happened, I was curious to know more. Maybe I would ask her about it. She had helped me figure out the last mystery. She could probably help with this one, too. But that would mean upsetting the natural order of older brother and younger sister. I was supposed to have all of the answers and wisdom, not her. I smiled, so thankful that she was safe. So relieved that we had both escaped that nightmare without harm. We made a good team, and at some point I would probably ask her. I remembered packing that Bible, Uncle Daniel's Bible, in my suitcase before leaving. Maybe digging a little myself first wouldn't hurt. I yawned again. Great. Another mystery. Hopefully this one would be easier to figure out, and not nearly as dangerous. Bloodshed was written, directed, and produced by Richard C. Mills. Featuring the vocal talents of Jeremy Webb, Marion Carlson, Enoch Heath, William E. Heath, Georgiana Mills, Christian Carlson, and Bree Ray. Musical score was created and produced by John Cooper, Justin Crosby, Yevgeny Yemelyanov, Yulio Kladniev, Bjorn Lynn, John Herberman, Tempero, Marcus Schmidt, and Jason Roy Cullimore. We hope you've enjoyed this production. Thank you for listening. <laughs>